Josh. We turned out okay. The Modern Parent's Guide to Old School Parenting. I want to hang upside down from the swing set. Welcome to We Turned Out Okay with host Karen Locke Cole. I want to climb to the top of that tree. And now, here's your host, Karen Locke Cole. I first became acquainted with today's guest in an article that she wrote for the Atlantic Monthly several years ago. It was about the mom of one of her students writing the student's paper for her and how frustrating that was for my guest as a teacher, because when your mom writes your papers, you are robbed of the experience. And that's one way in which you are not learning how to fall down by writing a bad paper and getting back up again. And then we fast forward to this summer when I heard my guest on the wonderful podcast, The Good Life Project. My guest has written an entire book now on how we American parents are hurting our kids by taking failure out of their lives. And I should say also, it's not just about how we're hurting them, but how we can make it better. (laughs) And it must have touched a nerve because the book has become a New York Times bestseller. Recently, I got to meet her in person, see her amazing presentation and talk with her afterward. She's such a genuine, wonderful person, fun and funny. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Jessica Leahy. Oh, what a nice introduction. Oh, well, it's it's <laughs> worth it. I mean, you're um I I so admire your writing and your I I, I was blown away by the presentation. Oh, um, thank you. Yeah, well, well I I really want to get into that. There's a special there's a particular section of it that that I I loved even more than others. Um but first I wanted to ask you, like this book is all about watching our kids fall down and and have having them figure out how to get back up and i'm wondering did you fail as a kid like was there anything memorable for you that comes up that happened when you were a kid you know not so, you know when i was a little kid i just have this memory of a childhood where i felt like my parents trusted me i mean i get the question a lot about what my own childhood was like based on the fact that i write about parenting and mm-hmm. honestly i felt like no matter what I got into, my parents were really confident in my ability to handle it. And even when I wasn't trusting myself, I sort of felt like that bled over and influenced my, you know, I felt more competent because of them. I felt more, Mm -hmm. I felt trusted. I felt like they would have my back, but that they knew that I could probably handle it. Mm -hmm. And you know, that has, that permeated everything I did. It gave me a confidence and an optimism that sort of, um, is, I I hate to say this, it's kind of shocking sometimes. I apply for stuff, you know, when I got out of college, I applied for jobs. I was not even close to qualified for, and I was like, well, let's see, I'll just kind of do it if it works. And it, and it just tended to work. And I think a lot of that came from, um, that optimism that they instilled in me just just via their trust. And uh-huh. so that was, you know, that was sort of the starting place. But yeah, I've had plenty of um, times when stuff has gone really wrong for me. And, and when I speak, I talk about the fact that until I was in my sort of early 20s, I had a really fixed mindset. I, I believed that, you know, if I messed up something, if I failed at something that I just wasn't good at it. And and that sort of came to bear in a couple of sort of big moments for me where I had to um, 
I had to say, wait a second, what the, what the heck am I doing? I, I, I'd <laughs> rather quit this than think about whether or not um, I could, I can improve my, um, my chances at succeeding at it just because it was too painful to face my own failures. So yeah, the, the whole growth mindset thing is a very personal story for me. And Ugh. Carol Dweck means a lot to me because of that. I'm so glad to hear you say that because I, I did want to talk about Carol Dweck and her research mm-hmm. um, in the interview today in our in our talk. But to hear you say that you had this mindset and were able to get rid of it, to change to a growth mindset from a fixed to a growth mindset really means a lot to me because I... I think I've always had a growth mindset. I've always been a person who's like, you know what? It's okay if I screw that up. I'll, mm-hmm. I'll fix it or whatever. But my boys um, both appear to have, in fact, I would even, well, both my boys have this idea that like, if it's not perfect, mm-hmm. I'm going to give it up. I'm yeah. going to abandon it because I've obviously ruined it and, and now life is over. And yep. so um, so let's, let's talk about Carol Dweck a little bit. I guess... I feel like I um I, I wanna I've gotta reshuffle my ideas for, for where to go in this interview because we gotta talk about her. Um yeah. so she's a she's a researcher from Clark University, right? In Worcester, Mass? No, that's Wendy Grolnick. Oh, Wendy so Grolnick. Oh, now sorry. Carol Dweck is at Stanford. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. And yeah, her she, she went out to Stanford a few years ago. And her work has to do with what you if you if you say to a child, well, actually, I don't know. Would would you mind explaining this? Sure, because <laughs> no, I no, feel no, like I'm going to say fine. it, and then um, you're going to say it better. So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Carol Dweck's research on fixed and growth mindsets actually has been um, oversimplified recently in the press. So it's always a uh, a great honor to be able to give you know a more awesome. nuanced view of it. And mm-hmm. she she looked at some um, she looked at kids to look at sort of mindsets around learning. And what she found was that if you give kids a task that um, a quiz, it happens to be in this sort of one seminal uh, study that she did, and it was a, a, a quiz on some quantitative skills, and it wasn't too hard, that if she praised half of the kids for being smart when she talked about their grades, like say, you know, for example, you got an eight out of 10, you must be so smart. And then half of them, she said, oh, you got an eight out of 10, you must have worked so hard. Mm-hmm. And there was no other commentary around it, just that small difference in the praise. That then when you give a slightly harder quiz, the kids who are praised for being smart do the same or a little bit worse, which you would expect because it's slightly harder. Mm-hmm. And then the kids that are praised for effort do the same or slightly better, which you know is interesting in and of itself. But my favorite parts of it come down to the response sort of from there on out, mm-hmm. the way the kids approach tasks. And part of that is, you know, when she produ- when she produces a, a challenge sheet and says, you know, if anyone wants this challenge sheet, it's really hard. And, you know, I don't know that many of you will be able to complete it, but, but here you go. Who wants it? And the kids who were praised for being smart didn't want the challenge sheet, whereas the kids who were praised for effort did want it, which makes sense a- a- as you go along with some of these other things that she found. The kids, um, she said, also, I have um, the quiz results of lots of other kids, and they're right here and you can look at them if you'd like and the kids who were praised for being smart wanted to see the quizzes of the kids who did really really poorly because they wanted to feel better about their own performance and the kids who were praised for effort wanted to see the quizzes of the kids who did better than they did so they could learn from them wow and even more interestingly she also asked the kids to write down their experience of the quiz for other kids and asked them to write down their score while they were at it and the kids who were praised for effort 
wrote down their score as she asked them to. But the kids who were praised for being smart, 40% of them lied about their score and raised their score artificially. And, you know, all of this makes sense when you think about you know, the way we tend to praise kids and what it does to them. Mm-hmm. When we praise kids for these inherent qualities like smart, talented, gifted, whatever that label is, they tend to sort of take that on as their the end-all, be-all description of them. And they don't want to screw around with that. They don't want to not live up to it. So the yeah. fastest way, the easiest way to protect it is to, you know, lie about it is to not take any challenges because, you know, God forbid you take some challenges and you don't do well at it. Suddenly someone might see you as not smart or even worse, see you as not effortlessly smart. Whereas the kids who were praised for effort kind of on some very basic level understood that, um, effort was important, that it was a part of being smart. And she went on to do a whole bunch of other experiments, but essentially what happens when you look at these kids is if you, teach kids that the harder you work your brains and the more you challenge yourself, that the more connections you make in your brain and the smarter you become, they develop a growth mindset. And Mm -hmm. that's sort of the holy grail for teaching, Mm -hmm. for teachers, because, you know, we want kids who are willing to stretch themselves and take risks because we know that they will become smarter and they will become more, uh, you know, mentally agile, the harder they work themselves at these things that are challenging. Uh, Whereas the, the fixed mindset kids, they just um, sort of feel like, okay, what I've got in terms of smarts is what I've got, and I better protect it or, you know, or give up if something seems too hard because, um, you know, I certainly don't want someone to find out that I'm not particularly smart or I'm not as smart as they think I mm-hmm. am. So that's sort of growth and fixed mindset in a in a nutshell. And uh, I have so many questions just about this one little thing. I'm going to try and remember them. <laughs> so, so um I'm going to tell them. So I'm going to share my questions so that we can maybe remember them together. So I'm wondering about extrinsic and intrinsic motivations and how that might relate to Carol Dweck's. But I'm also wondering um, how it was for you. How did you go from a fixed to a growth mindset? And I feel like there was one more. So let me just think for a minute. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I'd be happy to tell that story while you're thinking about it. Um, uh, Sure, sure. And if we get back to it, great. Um, I was going to say the reason I might not want that. It was really black and white, actually. Um, so I was, I went to law school when I was, uh, 24. Oh, wow. And is that right? No, I've, 26 when I was 26. I've always and, thought of you as a teacher. So, so yeah, to find out you went to law yeah, school first. I actually, I, I don't usually have time to tell the whole story in the, in my speaking engagements, but yeah, I, I was, I went to law school to become a juvenile lawyer. I was going to work in juvenile court. Actually, it was sort wow. of all lined up. I, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. <laughs> I was going to, you know, work with kids in, in court. Um, but then in the middle of law school, I was invited to teach a class at, um, at Duke and uh, to kids, to middle school kids on law in a democratic society. And I fell so in love with it. Um, the first day I came home and my husband took one look at me and he said, you know, are you even going to finish law school? Because it was so obvious that I had so fallen in love with uh. teaching. But um, my first year of law school, I, um, you know, law school is a really strange beast. It's the exams that they give in law school are unlike any exams you've ever taken before. They're, um, your entire grade is based on one three-hour written exam. And I, you know, I sort of went into law school thinking, you know, I've sort of cruised through school so far. I've done really well and it wasn't that challenging for me. And so this will be the same. And I uh, went into law school exams not having taken the practice exams, which are offered to everyone. You can take practice exams to sort of get a feel for law school exams because they're 
different. Mm -hmm. And I didn't do it because I thought, I don't know, I didn't need to do it. And also I sort of didn't want anyone to see me doing it because I I thought that that might reveal to my classmates that I was going to have to work at this or something like Mm -hmm. that, something stupid. Wow. So So, very fixed mindset, really. Yeah. Yeah. So I got my first grade back and um, it was civil procedure, uh, which was a nightmare anyway. But I thought I understood it pretty well, actually. I felt, you know, the exam was hard, but I felt good about the class. And my grade in civil procedure was a 68. And I didn't even know if a 68 was passing or failing. I mm-hmm. mean, it was so beyond the pale. I'd never wow. gotten a grade like that before. Mm-hmm. And so my first response upon getting that grade was to head for the dean's office to quit law school. Oh, wow. And luckily, one of my friends intercepted me, and um, she talked me down and, and convinced me to go talk with the professor. And I went to the professor's office, and his first question to me was, how would you do on the practice exam? And I said, well, I didn't take the practice exams. And he said, well, there's your problem. So, you know, I, I, it was it's in retrospect, I am so horrified that my first response to failing, not even failing, to doing really poorly on a law exam was to quit law school altogether, something <laughs> that I was positive I wanted to do, something I thought was like, you know, my destiny to work with these kids in juvenile court. Um, and I was going to give it all up because of this blow to my ego over um, a low grade. Wow. Oh, yeah. what, a, what a great story. I'm really glad that you were able to share that. I mean, I feel like that's, you can see the, the you can see the lead up, you can see why you were thinking yeah. that way. And yeah. then you can also see, you know, what changed and how that changed for you in a, in a minute. I mean, and it's, it's, I look back on it and I'm like, I just can't, and I just can't believe that was my first response, but it puts my students' behavior into perspective for me. I kind of get it. I I see what they're thinking when they're like, or my kids, when they can't, you know, I don't know, ride a bike the first time they get on the bike. Yeah. They're like, well, that's it. Forget it. Um, It's never going to happen. Forget that. Let's just go inside, you know, or a kid, you know, does poorly on something and they kind of flip out. Um, you know, I, I've been there. I, I get where that comes from. Yeah. So, and it, it, you know, it was really helpful for me as a teacher to understand that. And it really, it really makes me think again of this, um, this idea of extrinsic versus intrinsic um, motivation. And, and yeah. the reason I'm thinking about it right now is because uh, when my, when my 15 year old, he's now 15, when I, we've always been skiers, I'm Canadian by birth. My father taught, uh, after he retired, he taught, um, skiing in Breckenridge, Colorado for like 17 years and only stopped because they 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 decided to kind of go on the road in an RV. So he was like, <laughs> well, we just don't have the time for this anymore. Um, but I I had been a skier. I really wanted my family to be to ski with me. And um, when we would go to Colorado, when the kids were really small, I, we would be, you know, my father and I would be like, okay, how are we going to get the boys out there <laughs> kind mm-hmm. of a thing. And the years that Max was, I think, six and seven, um, he has a he's got an issue with one of his legs. He's he's got like a short Achilles tendon. He needed surgery on it when he was like five. And it's always given him some major balance problems. So that's a little bit of a part of this. I I really want to kind of bring that up because he's always thought of himself as a person with bad balance. Yeah. And and the reason for that, of course, is because he had this and we used to always be like, oh, honey, you know, don't do too much or what talk about teaching your child to not fail right yeah um and so two years in a row my dad and i set it up so that he would have a half a day lesson with a one-on-one uh like a almost a special needs kind of skiing and he Mm -hmm. loved the lesson he loved the teacher he was doing great you could tell that this was i mean we wanted him to be doing this but he loved it too and then we get to after lunch this happened two years in a row after lunch max you want to go back out yeah 
we go back out, he smashes into a fence, or we convince him that, you know, it's a great idea to go up to like the the chairlift that'll bring you to mid-mountain where all the intermediate skiers are or whatever. And two years in a row, he was like, just crushed. Mm-hmm. And and he basically said after the second year, he was like, that's it. I'm not a skier. I'm done. And yeah. what happened a few years ago was he picked up snowboarding. Like the idea of snowboarding really um, appealed to him because no one is making him do that. It's not it's not coming from the outside. He can still be with us as we're skiing, but snowboarding is what he really, really loves and wants to do. And talk about balance challenges. I mean, skis, at least you got the other leg, right, to stand on. When you're on a snowboard, it's all about how are your how you're coordinating your balance. I mean, in a way, he was failing at something that was extrinsic, like which mm-hmm. I think of as a skiing, and really succeeding at something that was intrinsic, even though the intrinsic one challenges him more. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And uh, well, and also, I mean, the, the interesting thing is that, you know, kids, it, it also shows the power of just how much a little success can can boost motivation, mm-hmm. um, you know, not necessarily dangling some extrinsic reward out in front of them and saying, oh, if you'll just get out there on the mountain um, for the morning, you can have a cupcake. Yeah. Um, exactly. Instead, it's about, you know, getting over the hurdles. And, and you know, as most parents can tell you, the minute you hand your kid over to someone else to teach them, it tends to go better anyway. <laughs> yep, it's um, true. Yeah, it's that it's amazing to me how many times I've turned around a, a relationship with a student when they have like one teensy tiny success and we can keep building on that sort of positive energy. But you're also right, it's incredible how fast it can be derailed by sort of their frustration over their mindset about what their um what their abilities are. Absolutely. It's like the only thing that's changed is I think I suck at this. Like yeah, or I think yeah. I'm good at this. I think I can do this and um it really struck me when you were talking about kids asking for tougher problems Mm -hmm. and saying that in fact there's a part in your book where you say that the kids were saying it's fun these are fun and yeah and actually the the book that I recommend a lot um actually there's a bibliography if you go to my website to jessicalehi.com and go to speaking and about under Mm -hmm. speaking there's a bibliography there that's my speaking bibliography and it sort of mentions all the books and studies and stuff like that that I tend to mention in speaking and one of them is this book called Ungifted by Scott Barry Kaufman oh delightful Scott was a special ed kid uh, when he was young he had an auditory processing disorder and he stayed a special ed kid even though he was fairly sure something had changed. They sort of kept him in special ed. And he he didn't feel like he needed to be there. He really wanted the challenge of the gifted class. And he would go and ask teachers to let him into the gifted class. He asked the principal to let him into the gifted class. And the principal actually even pulled out a bell curve and showed Scott his IQ scores against the IQ scores of the gifted kids, you know, one of those, oh, sweetie, look, here's Mm -hmm. this curve. Here's where the gifted kids are. And here's where you are. And you just don't belong in that class. And Scott just never developed that fixed mindset about his own abilities. He continued to want challenge. And he craved it. Thank goodness they, you know, this this whole experience didn't kill it off in him. And he went on to, uh, he ended up going off to college and then graduate school. And he now runs the Imagination Institute at University of Pennsylvania, where they're trying to develop a new understanding of intelligence that that includes things like creativity. Because Scott just knew that something was not being captured in that 
measure of his intelligence and the measure of lots of kids intelligence that you know may not show up as a high IQ score and so hmm. it's it's really interesting to talk to people like Scott who seem to ha- be immune to that sort of fixed mindset yeah, situation yeah. where they never say I can't craving challenge no matter what uh. um, someone says about what he can or can't do and you know I, I sort of hold him up as an ideal of what can happen if we sort of free ourselves from that fixed mindset um, situation yeah and and listeners I will link to Jessica's speaking bibliography in the show notes. So if you, if you go to, I don't know what episode it's going to be yet. Uh, This show will air. We're recording it in December, but it'll probably air in February, January or February. Um, So it'll definitely be up there for, for you all. Um, I know that as a parent, especially when they were young, I'm better at this now, but I really tried hard to make sure that everything was perfect for my kids when they were little. Mm-hmm. I did a lot less. I, as a, So I was a preschool teacher and I have a master's degree in early childhood education. All my experiences um, in learning to be a teacher really served me well when, when they were little. With this one exception, which is that I... I arranged everything for them and I continued sort of arranging everything for them too, too late, I think. And I'm sure I'm not alone. And I'm wondering, why do we do this? Why do parents <laughs> do this? Um, you know, the, oh God, there's so many reasons for it. Um, so uh, the simple answer is that it feels good. <laughs> you yeah. know, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, that warm and cozy feeling when you're holding your baby and feeding your baby and, um, you just feel like, yeah, everything this baby needs is right here. Mm-hmm. And there you get that big blast of oxytocin and you get that blast of dopamine maybe. And, and you feel like, you know, you're providing it's, and it's all good and everybody's safe and wonderful. And as our kids get older, it gets harder to sort of get that because there are suddenly so many other factors. And, you know, Partially, we have this sort of feeling to protect our offspring, this biological mm-hmm. imperative to protect our offspring. And, you know, our our biological systems don't know whether that's, you know, a, a saber-toothed tiger running running our kid down or, you know, a, a soccer opponent running our kid down. Mm-hmm. Um, we just want to protect them. And mm-hmm. sometimes that's protecting them from um, disappointment, protecting them from a teacher who they feel who you might feel is being mean to them or whatever that thing is there's so many reasons that we f- just need that shot of yes i protected i made them feel good i made mm-hmm. them feel happy i made them feel loved yeah and i think i think that is it's so powerful and it's so powerful on a, a pure biological level on an emotional level that um it tends to override our long-term perspective on on what our job is as parents which is honestly to you know to put ourselves out of a yeah, job to become to obsolete create kids that are not dependent on us for for everything and not dependent on us to rescue save protect you know that kind of stuff and and it's hard to let go of that it, it feels pretty wonderful you know Has, it, it's the reason that you know we sniff those baby heads know, that those whenever <laughs> someone walks up to us with a kid we're like oh i just need to hold it and yeah. feel like there's i can you know get that feeling back of being yeah. able to you know be everything to this little teensy humans yeah. universe yeah it's so you know it's it's hard to let go and I guess my other question is, um, 
Uh, oh gosh, I'm sorry. I just, I just, no, 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 a, no, no, a no, kid just wandered in. <laughs> well, and there's, well, and and like I said, like I say, um, when I'm out speaking, there are so many other reasons too. I mean, you can look at the history of American parenting, and you can mm. talk about the fact that we're having kids later. We're having kids after more education. <laughs> we're having, we're applying, uh, you know, we're having our kids after being out in the workforce, and then we apply this the tools of the workforce, like spreadsheets and things like that, to our children's lives, and you know, micromanage, and then we also you know are used to getting performance reviews and we're used mm-hmm. to getting grades and we're used to people sort of handing down some judgment on how we're doing and how we're doing as parents we can't know that unless we look at our kids and so mm-hmm. we hold our kid up as evidence as exhibit a of here you go my kid is successful therefore i'm a good parent and it's you know there's just yeah. a lot of reasons that it's you know, we're putting so much weight on our kids to be the determinants, to be the evidence of our parenting. And at the same time, it, it feels good to sort of keep them a little bit dependent so we can keep getting that, that, that blast of oxytocin every time we help them. And that was going to be my question. What's it, You've just described it, really. I think you've just answered it. So many things I feel like have changed in terms of the the culture. That, so my question was going to be, okay, but we've always had oxytocin. We've always had these kind mm-hmm. of parental like jolts and or or the need for them but but i feel like something's changed in the culture in the last couple decades to make it so that now we are you know we are awarding them uh certificates of notification when they are certificates of whatever wonderfulness when they complete a soccer season or something it's yeah again that chapter on uh, you know i sort of had to do a chapter on the history of american parenting which was fascinating but i also know it's not exactly the thing that a lot of people will sit down and read for pleasure. So Mm -hmm. I made it as short and as as concise (laughs) as possible. Um, You know, there's a lot there, everything from, you know, we've, we've, we no longer view kids as, um, as helpful parts of the family that bring in either income or labor. Mm -hmm. Kids have become what um, Vivian, uh, what this woman um, who wrote this incredible book about, about um, pricing the priceless child, um, they've become They've become, uh, they're not of value to our family in anything other than sort of how they turn out and and, and their success. They don't like add income to the family. They don't tend to add labor to the family because mm-hmm. we don't ask our kids to do anything anymore. Mm-hmm. It's sort of rare when kids have, you know, really some substantive family duties. Um, like I said, we're having kids later. We're having fewer of them. Um, the media is telling us, you know, that it's going to be, it's going to be so expensive to raise them. It's going to be so expensive to get them through school. They're huge investments. We can't expect them to do as well as we did. You know, generationally yeah. speaking, we're at a place where suddenly we can't count on that anymore. We can't yeah. count on our kids to be able to do better than we did. And that's frightening. So yeah. it's fear. It's um, this pricelessness of our children. It's yeah. the fact that there's fewer of them to bear the brunt of our, you know, micromanaging. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, that old joke about, you know, the later kids kind of get the benefit of benign neglect. Um, you know, there aren't as many kids anymore. And so the benign neglect doesn't tend to um, fall yeah. on the shoulders of, uh, of any kid anymore, which is unfortunate. So, yeah. um, you know, lots and lots of reasons all sort of created this perfect storm that we're in right now. Wow. That's, and it's, you can see it stretching out into the past. <laughs> Yeah, you know, how and, we got and here. I, I also think that, you know, a lot of kids, my husband, for example, you know, his parents worked and he was a latchkey kid. He came home in the afternoons by himself and mm-hmm. he was an only child. And I think in a way, you know, for parents like that that grew up that way, um, that there's 
they either say, oh, it was the best thing ever. I ran out into the woods and was on my own and had freedom. Or they say, you know, it kind of sucked. I was alone and um, I didn't have anyone to talk to. And mm-hmm. I want to prevent that from my own children. I happened to be of the camp that thought it was great. I, you know, I lived um, in a in the woods and I could run around and do all kinds of stuff. And I had plenty of things to occupy myself. Um, but for lots of people, that neglect, that benign neglect, that ability to have lots of time to just... Um, to entertain yourself mm-hmm. um, wasn't wasn't what they want for their own kids. Um, they want to sort of make sure that their kids have lessons and everything is planned and yeah. lots of traveling sports teams and all those kinds of things. Yeah. Um, and what we've lost in that are, is the ability of kids to entertain themselves and to um, have time alone to sort of figure out, to just think and just be alone and be quiet and, and figure stuff out for themselves. And that's happening to kids younger and younger and younger. Mm-hmm. I mean, like now, you know, you can hand off a tablet to your really small child and and kind of take a break. <laughs> think of it as yeah. taking a break, but it's, what's it doing? I mean, like that, and those are those are mistakes that I, I like to often say on, on the show that I am not standing across from my listener with my finger out in their face. <laughs> <laughs> I am sitting next to them with my arm around them or my hand on their shoulder because yeah. I have totally done these things. I have yeah. I have said to my kids, you know, when they were probably too young, okay, you watch Sesame Street. I'm going to go take a nap. <laughs> like, oh, absolutely. But, uh, you know, what the other thing is that I, you know, a lot of parents I talk to, they say, you know, I, it's just so tiring because my kids need me to, you know, they need me right there with them when they play or when they draw. They need, they need me to tell them what I think of their pictures constantly. And I said, you know, one of the most powerful things we can give our kids is their own internal locus of approval. So one of the best things we can do is say, uh, when the kid comes up to it and says, oh, mommy, mommy, what do you think of this picture I drew is to say, I, you know, what do you think what of it? What do you it? think of it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that frustration that my friend was experiencing over having to pass judgment on everything her kid does and see, you know, look at this, look at this, look at this. She had compl- she had fostered that. Mm-hmm. She had had given kids feedback on every tiny little thing they did. And they got to the point where they didn't, you know, they were handing off scribbles and saying, mommy, look at this wonderful picture I did without even stopping to think. Uh, yeah, that's a piece of crap. I, yeah. I didn't put any effort into that. I'm just looking for I'm looking for my mom to give me nice words of praise. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's important for us to step back for a second and say, well, what are we doing by being there constantly with feedback on, for our kids 24-7? And you know where we've seen that is my oldest, um, when he was maybe seven, eight, nine years old, wanted to be a magician. Like he, he really uh-huh. got into magic. And we were of the of the mindset that okay you can learn how to be a magician especially my husband was so great at this max would do a trick and my husband would say okay so i saw that i saw a little yeah. max would say how did i do you know am i doing this like i want to i want to really be able to do this in a in a kind of like presentation way and he actually eventually i mean he, he was like 10 or something but he did a couple of shows like for family and mm-hmm. it was really it was such a great experience to watch him learn that but what our idea was really like okay when you have when you're out in front of an audience this is what you need to work on kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. And one day we were at a friend's house and the friends the like the younger of the, of the two sons was like, um, I, you know, here I go, I'm, I'm doing magic. And, and the mom, like it was, it was clear that he hadn't practiced it really well and mm-hmm. uh, that kind of thing. And, and the mom's sort of like, didn't he do great or whatever. And you could even, you could tell that the, the son 
knew that he hadn't done a great job. <laughs> but the mom was like, oh, well, that was so wonderful. And it's like, yeah. oh. <laughs> well, and actually that's, that gets at something that's really important. There was a study last year that came out showing that, you know, what, we are, what we're trying to do when we praise, praise, praise our kids as part of this sort of, you know, failed self-esteem movement thing was to, you know, create kids that had such great self-esteem that any negative feedback was going to just be deflected off of them and they would be bulletproof, right? Yeah. So that doesn't work because one of the things we found is especially for kids with low self-esteem, kids who are doubting their abilities, um, when we give them tons and tons of positive reinforcement about how smart they are, how talented they are, how great they are, um, their self-esteem actually goes down Mm -hmm. for a couple of reasons. Because number one, their experience of the world is not matching what we're saying. And that's scary because they look to us to have to, you know, to, to be honest with them. And yeah. when we give them all this positive reinforcement about things that are maybe aren't going that great, they lose faith in us and yeah. they can't trust our judgment anymore. Yeah. So when that kid hands us a scribble and we say, oh, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. I'm going to put it on the refrigerator. The kid looks at us like, oh, lady, I'm on to you. <laughs> I, I, this isn't, this is a piece of crap. Yeah. What are you doing telling me Why that it's wonderful? Why are you holding this up as something wonderful? It's clearly yeah, not. Yeah. And so, so suddenly they can't trust us anymore. And our, everything we say from there on out in terms of, you know, quality of work or quality of whatever is, is suspect. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want my, you know, when my kid does well and I say that and, and I really like something that they've done, um, with my older kid now it's, it's writing. He's 17. He's almost 17. He'll be 17 next week. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, he looks, he trusts me for his judge for judgment on his writing and he doesn't give me his writing that often. And so when he does, you better believe I'm going to give honest, real feedback about yeah. his writing and not just gush over the fact that, you know, he can put a sentence on paper. Yeah. Yeah. Because I want him to respect my judgment. And if I give him crap feedback, he's not going to respect my judgment anymore. Yeah. Gosh. And I feel like that's what's happening with my kids, too, is that they know, like, I, I'm a I'm a teacher of young children. I, I'm, I'm a, I have a master's degree and, and they they know that I'm not going to in terms of especially it comes up in terms of like social situations or whatever as they get older mm-hmm. um where i'm not going to say to them oh honey you know you did that just right or whatever i'm going to say like listen maybe your friend was thinking this <laughs> yeah and yeah. um if if they want that and i always say you know especially as they're as they're adolescents i feel like our job once they once they hit adolescence is really more to be to have a good relationship with them, not so mm-hmm. much to say like, listen, I'm going to, you're under my control and what I say goes, but to more be like, listen, you know, you're going to, you're living, you're learning how to live your own life. And, mm-hmm. um, I-, I can help you with that, but I'm not going to help you unless you give me permission to basically. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so something else, something that just came up for me, that's always driven me nuts as a, as a teacher of young children, which is this idea of giving kids and I know this is younger than you're than you're usually teaching but giving kids a model of something to follow and I'd, I'd love to share a story I swear to, all my stories today are, seem to be about Max but I do have some good ones about my younger one too but anyway <laughs> when Max was two we were in a playgroup and we all took turns in this playgroup bringing in activities for the kids to do because they were from like babies to five so, so mm-hmm. you know some of the older kids were really interested in glue and paper and that kind of stuff and there was this mom one day who it was right around St. Patrick's Day, and one of the moms brought in a, a a really 
time taking like, you know, more time than maybe a two year old would would be able to commit to this, to make a leprechaun out of all of these talk about control, right? All these pieces of paper that she had cut out painstakingly. So you have a big one for the head and you have a body sized Mm -hmm. one and arms and hands and legs and feet and the pipe and the hat because it's a leprechaun, all that kind of stuff. And when my Mac sat down to sort of do this, I mean, he's thinking like, I'm going to put the glue here and then I'm going to stamp this great little thing on it. And it's not about the the outcome. It's about the process for a two-year-old. Well, this woman sits next to my son and starts making him, like taking his hands and making him stick the pieces where they belong. (laughs) And I was just like, don't touch my son, first of all. But second (laughs) of all, like, are you nuts? Like, why make it yours, not his? So I just, I can, my question for you is, is there a case to be made for modeling at all? For model, you mean for for giving kids examples of how you would do it? I, I guess, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, mean I, I mean, one of the things that yeah, absolutely. I mean, okay. uh, one of the things I've been doing, we built a um, a makerspace in the basement for my son from like cast off and donations from the neighborhood and awesome. um, and trash bits of you know crap that he puts together to build stuff. Oh, cool. Um, and one of the things he's trying to learn how to do is to do some woodworking. And I'm not great at it, but I know more than he does. And so I absolutely will go down there and say, you know, if you're going to put two pieces of wood together in a right angle, here's a better way to do it. And here's, you know, then maybe the way you did it. Or he'll bring something upstairs and he'll, you know, a sword he's trying to put together and he's mm-hmm. put it together in a way that makes sense for him without any experience. And I'll say, sure, this is great. You could do this. And, or if you want, I could show you another way to do it. So that's what we, cool. I mean, absolutely modeling yeah. what we do is the most powerful tool we have. I talk about it all the time in terms of modeling the way we handle our own um, risk-taking, emotional and intellectual risk-taking, the way um, we model how we set goals for ourselves and, and work towards, towards those goals, how we talk about dealing with our own failures. That's like the first and most important yeah. learning place for them. Um, yeah. But when it comes to the kind of stuff you're talking about, you know, the more practical sort of moments with homework where you know, we where you could easily just grasp, take the pencil out of their hand and say, <laughs> let me show you how I do it. Yeah. As a teacher, like I try to, I try to do with my kid what I can picture myself doing in the classroom. And I would never take a pencil out of my student's hand and say, let me just show you how I do it. Uh-huh. Because that's, be, that's, that's not helpful for them. Yeah. Um, when I'm teaching, I, it's a constant dance of thinking about doing some perspective taking, thinking about why they're thinking about it in a particular way, trying to get inside their head and then help them based on that perspective, understand another way to do it or a more proper way to do it. Oh, I love um, that. And and none of that ever involves me grabbing the pencil out of their hand and saying, let me just show you how I do it. No, yeah. Um, I could say, oh, that's an interesting way to think about it. Here, let me explain to you how I was thinking about it because that might help. Um, mm-hmm. But there's a really fine line between taking over and just doing for or trying to replace your thinking with their thinking with your thinking, which you can't do. It's not like a, you can't just stick a USB in their head and <laughs> stick in their head exactly. and download your thinking to their brain. Yeah. They have to understand the thinking too. I mean, the number of times that my, one of my colleagues, Allison, who teaches uh, math at the middle school where I used to teach, she said, you know, the number of times students would come in and have an answer, the right answer to a problem, but be unable to explain how they got there because their parent led them by the hand to that answer, um, was it happened all the time. 
And that's not helpful. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, the homework yeah. looks great. And that's, you know, probably made the parent feel good when the kid left the house with fantastic looking homework. Yeah. But it's certainly not helpful for the kid or the teacher because the teacher then doesn't know what the kid doesn't know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like those it's like those um dioramas. I when when my oldest was a kindergartner, mm-hmm. he or for, I think it might have been first grade, he made his diorama himself. And mm-hmm. we got in there and it was clear that like most of the other parents had made their kids dioramas. I mean, they were so perfect. Right. And and done like an adult would do them and um and I guess I mean that's I love I'm really super glad I asked this question because there's there's a lot more to modeling than just do it my way. You know, mm-hmm. here's a thing yeah. for you to follow. And I'm, oh, I'm yeah. I I think it's such, it really bears thinking about like, it's not, it, it's a really, there are, I guess there's positive and negative, right? There's, mm-hmm. there's the kind of modeling that you were mentioning where you want to say like, d- if you want to see a way to do it, here's how, here's an example of how I've done it. How about this? I mean, um, the way that I think it works really well is if you, for, especially now that the math, the kids are learning, learning math slightly differently than we did. Yes. Um, long division <laughs> just does not look the same the way my kid does it that yeah. I learned. Yeah. Um, so I ask him to explain the way his teacher taught it to him. And any teacher will tell you that you don't really know something until you've taught it to something, someone else. So any opportunity you can get your kid to explain a concept to you, mm-hmm. it's not only helpful for them in their own understanding of something, it also can help you understand the way they're thinking about it incorrectly. Yeah. Um, because you could say, oh, yeah, yeah, I see why you think that. Uh, for example, the other day my son came home and he said, okay, he was looking at positive numbers and negative numbers and they were multiplying them and dividing them. Mm-hmm. And he said, so when there's a negative number and a positive number, that means I divide it, right? And of course, that's wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, it, he was what he was thinking was, you know, when you're instead of multiplying a positive and a negative, that you automatically divide it because there's a negative and the positive is just not right. Yeah, yeah. So I asked him to explain to me why he thought it was that way, and I was able to suss out that it was just a very simple misunderstanding yeah. um, when the teacher said something. It just happened that when she explained division, it was with a problem that was a negative and a positive. Okay, so he really um, made that a rule for himself. that out when he explained it to me. That's a much more rich way to get at yeah. the problem, um, so to get much, at their misunderstanding. Don't you feel like so much of life is figuring out what somebody else's perspective is and oh, then yeah. trying to you know, help them understand based on their un- their current understanding. Right. And yeah. one of the fun things I found when I started doing more autonomy supportive teaching as, a, as a, in, a, in addition to autonomy supportive parenting was I let my students teach class more often and do peer-to-peer teaching. And it's so hard for middle school students to do perspective taking mm-hmm. on how someone else is thinking about a problem. So, for example, in Latin class, I would give, you know, a particular kid the answer key and then she would be in charge of that of teaching that lesson, of getting through the corrections on the homework. And she had to not, she, this one student in particular would constantly say, oh, let me just explain how I did it. And I said, no, 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 that's not your primary job. Your primary job is to say, oh, this kid, let's say his name is Ethan. Ethan thinks he needs to use the accusative case here, but it's actually the nominative case. Why is he thinking that he needs to use the accusative case there? If you can get at that, then you can also teach him rather than just show him why you got it right. I don't, he doesn't care that you got it right. He cares about why he got it wrong. Yeah. Um, so that's, it's, it's a really powerful thing, the whole peer to peer teaching and, and having kids teach parents is 
great. Oh, it's wonderful. the reason I send home um, weekly newsletters to parents with highlights of what we learned that week so that when the parents say, what did you learn this week? And the kid says, uh, nothing. The parents have some ammunition to talk about um, some of the things the kids learn. Yeah. Yep. My, I, I feel bad. I need to come up with one for Jay. But anyway, my oldest is taking a physics class. And uh-huh. he, uh, it, I feel like it's been hard as a 15 year old to, he, sometimes he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to take classes, especially mm-hmm. if he doesn't know anyone in the class or whatever. But, but the pull of quantum physics was too much for him. So we ended up doing this. And we, we come home from, we have a, like a 45 minute drive home and we come home from class and the whole way home, He'll get in the car and he'll say, well, I have a I have a wonderful headache because of what we learned today. And I'll be like, oh, <laughs> tell me about that. And he'll tell me about something like, um, oh, there's something called quantum exchanging or something like that, which is basically like, you know, in Star Trek, how they would get beamed from one place to another. Mm-hmm. Well, we have uh, humans have done this with, I think it's photons, okay. entanglement, quantum entanglement. That's what it's called. We have taken a photon and made it move from one island to another island for real Hmm. and uh max spent one entire car ride home explaining this to me and like in the most animated terms that you can imagine uh it's just it's it's so much it's so much fun to watch them figure out how to teach somebody's you know something like i don't know anything about quantum physics so uh, and then it like uh, it came up at Thanksgiving. We spent the week of Thanksgiving with relatives, as we always do. And he was so animated, and and make really connecting with people. You know, like it wasn't just him sort of lecturing. It was like you're not going to believe this cool thing I learned. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and it really it really is. It for me it brings up the word again autonomy actually and competence mm-hmm. and um, yeah. I one of the things I wanted to ask you about was in your presentation, which I loved so much the the words autonomy, competence, and connection came mm-hmm. up. And just as like, just geeking out over uh, the way that you presented, you you helped me remember those three words. I can still remember them because what you did was you moved, like you talked about <laughs> autonomy in one area of the auditorium stage, and then you'd move to another area to talk about competence, and then a third area to yeah. talk about connection. And it was, so I just wanted to give you some feedback. I love that. Oh, that's really cool. No, it, it's funny. I was, that's really interesting you say that. I didn't, I honestly wasn't doing that consciously, but I was watching a show the other day on National Geographic about vet school. And this um, vet teacher was teaching the students about a horse's uh, gastrointestinal system by making them do a dance that led them through the gastrointestinal tract. And they felt ridiculous. But at the same time, when you, I mean, that's really effective learning. If Mm -hmm. you can engage your body and you get your, number one, getting the kids on their feet is always a good thing. Oh, yeah. But if you can engage movement with learning, it just gives one extra hook for, you know, the learning to drop in. And see, the problem is when I'm lecturing, like I was doing with you guys, I can't get you up and moving. So I have to, I have to use everything I can think of in my repertoire to help you hook pieces of learning onto something and it can't be through movement. So, you know, I move more. Oh, it Um, worked. Yeah. So, and I do that a lot in the classroom, just number one, because I'm hyper, but also number two, (laughs) because I find that if you can find any possible hooks um, to put uh, knowledge into kids' heads, then, you know, you're, you're ahead of the game. So thank you for saying that. I really appreciate that. It, 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 and, and even like sort of later in the presentation, if you were talking about autonomy, you'd go back to the what was for me the other side of it. So mm-hmm. like everything that came after that in the talk, I could remember 
much oh, much good. better. I mean, it really. I was like astounded at how at how just how well that one you know one little thing worked. Oh, that's fantastic feedback. Oh, good. I'm I'm glad. I I I plan to do it in presentations when I you know I'm going to incorporate that kind of thing when I'm doing a presentation. I think. Okay. Um, I so the ideas of autonomy, competence, and connection. Now we all we've our time is kind of short, <laughs> but I feel I, which always happens. I you know it's so you get so into these interviews and it's like, no, it's almost time. <laughs> but um, so autonomy, obviously, that's the idea of giving your child, allowing your child some independence, letting them make decisions and that kind of a thing. Uh, well, and I'm backing up for context. So what okay, you're sure. talking about is, so in uh, so we talked a lot about extrinsic motivators and 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 the fact that they just don't, they, they don't work for learning. I mean, yeah. they just don't. Yeah. They don't work for long-term focused things. They don't learn, they don't work for creative things. It just doesn't work. But intrinsic motivation where you're, intri- where you're motivated from within does work and it's, it's an incredibly powerful thing. Um, and the three things you need in order to get a kid intrinsic, get anyone intrinsically motivated are autonomy, competence, and connection. And connection. There we and go. And that comes from Edward D.C. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Uh, so autonomy, this idea of of being independent, making your own decisions. Competence, which is different than confidence, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Confidence is, I confidence know I can do this. Confidence is that empty sort of hoping that things are going to be fine. Like the, uh, it's that optimism that, you know, someone told me this is going to work out great or my mom thinks <laughs> yeah. I'm wonderful. So therefore I'm, I'm wonderful. But yeah, competence yep. is confidence actually based on experience. Yes, as experience. As opposed to just, just empty confidence. Yeah, yep. And connection is what's, obviously the connections that we have with, with people, but they become so much more, our connections become so much uh, more meaningful maybe when we, when we have autonomy and competence behind them. Do you, do you agree? Am yeah, I seeing that right? And, and, and connection the way, you know, the way where DC talks about connection is just interpersonal connection, you know, knowing that the people around us love us and support us and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a teacher, I also talk about it as uh, connecting whatever it is we're teaching kids to, the bigger world that, that, so that they can know that whatever it is we're trying to teach them matters, that mm-hmm. it's going to be relevant in their lives. And that's, that's the key thing that helps connect it to intrinsic motivation that it, you, why on earth would you want to learn something that will have no bearing on your life whatsoever yeah. ever again? Um, and no bearing outside this classroom. Yeah. Um, I certainly wouldn't be interested in that, but the more we can convince kids that, the stuff they're learning matters out there that, um, you know, learning about um, algebra is going to help them understand this other bigger concept or learning about geometry help, will help them understand how, you know, people navigated ships or mm-hmm. how we understand astronomy, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, the more we can do that for them, the more likely it, we're going to have them engaged. Yeah. And, and I think even the learning is deeper when they care about it. Yeah. Right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah they're, they're kids are just kids don't care about stuff that doesn't matter to them. Yeah. And they you can just don't you, especially with young kids. I love sometimes when they're three, four, five years old and you'll say, I can't I wish I could think of a good example. I feel like I've got my youngest in mind now where where I would say, well, you know, let's try it this way or whatever. And my my son would be like, well, that's like stupid. Why? Why should we? <laughs> you know what I mean? He's he's really thinking about like, what is this going to mean for me? And mm-hmm. if it means something, then that's that's where you've got good, good learning going on. That's where you've got uh, f- experience and 
and confidence and autonomy yeah. and, con- no, and connection. My uh, my older kid didn't. I was talk about a growth, a uh, fixed mindset. My older kid didn't learn how to ride a bike until he was much, much, much older than his friends. Mm-hmm. And the only reason he learned how to ride a bike was that he he needed to know how to ride a bike to go bike riding with his friends to mm-hmm. go swim. And um, until that point he was frustrated that he couldn't get it right the first time around, but also it just didn't matter. He was willing to jog along beside their, behind their bikes or avoid situations in which he'd have to ride his bike in order to not be embarrassed in front of them. But suddenly it mattered to him. And so by God, he was going to learn how to ride his bike and he (laughs) did it by himself. So, you know, I don't, I just don't freak out over stuff like that anymore. If my kid doesn't want to learn how to swim today, Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, I want them to learn how to hold their head above water so they don't drown. But if they, I don't care if they look like the prettiest swimmer today. Yeah. Because at some point it might matter to them. And, and in the meantime, they can save themselves if they fall into a pool. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. When I was, uh, when I was in the third grade, my mom signed me up for swim lessons. You ought to learn how to swim kind of thing. And I wouldn't even get in the pool. Like I would not get in the pool and I would go home and I would say, my mom would say, how'd you do? And I'd be like, oh, I jumped off the high diving board and I did all these things. And my mom, there's like a, it's it's this kind of place with like two way glass. So one day she Mm -hmm. stayed and she watched and she saw that I didn't even get in the water. And she said, why did you tell me that you were jumping off the high diving board when you can't even get in the water? And I said, well, I thought that if you thought I was doing a great job, you wouldn't, you wouldn't make me keep going that you'd stop Mm -hmm. and and my mom later we talked about it and she said so I stopped I mean and now it's so fast forward I've had this tendon disorder for a couple of years now for four years now and Mm -hmm. the first part of it had to do with my legs and I you know kind of lost the ability to walk more than a few steps and I I regained it it took a long long time to regain it and one of the things that was most important was swimming so right. I was I was assigned aquatic therapy and I remember thinking, what stupid thing is this? This isn't going to help. <laughs> and I get in the pool the first day and I had to push my leg to make it go backwards because I didn't have the muscle strength to move my leg backwards when water was resisting it. Mm-hmm. And fast forward, you know, 18 months, I'm a, I'm a swimmer. I'm not a pretty swimmer. I'm not a great swimmer. I don't have a lot of endurance, but I love to swim. And about a mm-hmm. year ago, my mom and I got in a pool together and she was like, when did you learn how to swim like this? And I said, it's, it's, it's from physical therapy. It was very much intrinsically motivated. So yeah. I feel like we keep coming back to that today, which is cool. Yeah, my um, husband actually became a swimmer uh, late in life. He was pushed into a pool when he was little by a swim instructor. I don't know what, oh, what that was. I know it was really, really traumatic for him. And in his, you know, when he became older, he actually found that he liked swimming, but he was a terrible swimmer. And so he took lessons as an adult. You know, when I was in seventh grade, I did not do well in algebra one. And I was told that I was not a math kid. And that pissed me off. And so when I became a middle school teacher and my free period happened to coincide with my colleague Allison's middle school um, algebra one class, I took algebra one in my forties. Oh, that's awesome. And really actually enjoyed it. Um, But I was doing it not for a grade, but just for my own getting over that, you know, that hurdle of being told that I wasn't a math kid. So, you know, there's, when we can engage that intrinsic motivation, whether that's in us or in kids, it's incredibly powerful. It makes a huge, huge difference. Yep. And so listeners, I mean, watch your kids and see what, what motivates them. I mean, that's, that's my advice, but I do have got time for one last question. And it is this, if my listeners could do just one thing to give their kids the gift of failure, what would that be? Yeah, it's really basic. Um, Start thinking long term instead of short term. Stop thinking about what is perfect and feels good and feels 
happy and, and warm and cozy right this very second and start thinking about where you want your kid to be in six months, in a year, in five years, um, because those long-term, those long-term goals tend to be tend to be sort of based more on on long-term competence and long-term um, maturity and stuff like that. Whereas when we're thinking really short-term, we're just thinking about what feels good in the moment. And that's not always what's going to feel good over the long run. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, just orient towards long-term over short-term. All right. And orient towards process over product. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, what we get on a test isn't as important as what we learned in order to take that test. But we have such a focus as a society on product mm-hmm. um, that it throws the, the focus off of process. And, <sighs> and it should be as much as possible. All of our discussion and at home should be about process over product. Oh, we need to do a whole nother show about that. <laughs> <laughs> like, I feel like um, you talked about in the presentation that I saw, you talked about the origin of grades. And, and there's this real idea that and one of the one of the quotes I didn't get to read today, but that um, I really took a lot from your book was the the how the Japanese society specifically views um, growth like yeah it's actually south korea and, and oh, so, south, oh, okay. in south korea this idea of intelligence is much more um there's a great book called parenting beyond borders from christine Grosslow, and she talks about the difference between an asian mentality of in education and ours and 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 amanda ripley talks about it in the smartest kids in the world too um you know in in south korea the, the intelligence is not about what you're born with it's it's also and very much based on how hard you work to get there mm-hmm. it's about effort the, the yes. harder you work the smarter you become it's, kind of thing it's about the um, process and the more often you present yourself with desirable difficulties which are in this book make it stick um that the the more connections you make in your brain and the smarter you become and wow. i love that i love yeah. just so trying to keep your eye on that prize well I, ho- I really hope can i invite you back on the show once your life settles down a little bit I mean, absolutely I oh, and wonderful. and i you know the stuff i'm working on now for my next book is much more based on this connection stuff so i would absolutely love to come and talk cool more. yay 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 well <laughs> jessica Leahy, what a pleasure to have you on the show thanks for Thank being on you. it's it was it's been great Listeners, you can connect with Jessica at jessicalahey.com. Please read her book. You will gain so much from it. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. You can find Jessica at Jess Leahy on Twitter. And to connect with me, I'm on Twitter at Stone Age Techie. I'm on Instagram at We Turned Out Okay. Full show notes for this episode will be at my website, weturnedoutok.com. You can go to the contact page there to tell me what you think. And if you like the show, please subscribe to it, rate it, review it in either iTunes or Stitcher, which are the platforms that I'm in right now. I know that everybody asks listeners to do that, but that's because it's so important. That's how it gets in front of the, you know, the eyes of other people who might really enjoy it and get something from it. I second that Amazon especially rates, um, pushes things up in their recommendations based on ratings. Please go review my book if you read it. Yeah, I'm doing failure. It's really important to review people's work. We, we rely on that. Yeah. Yeah. The gift of failure. I'm going to do that as soon as I hit stop. Um, <laughs> because that's I've loved this book. And I've gotten so much out of it. And the world needs to know that. So thank you, everybody so much for listening. It really means a lot to me that you have you that you have Jessica and I in your ears right now. And finally, I would like to give a special thanks to our producer, the man who's always there to help me see that my failures aren't failures, but experiences to learn from the 18 time winner of the husband of the year award, Benjamin Culp. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we will see you next time.
Thank you for listening to We Turned Out Okay. I want a date to Australia. Find us on the web at weturnedoutok.com, where you'll find show notes and more. What do you call cheese that's not yours? Nacho cheese. And remember, we only go around once. To be the best parents we can be, let's relax and enjoy the ride. I want to pee in the woods. Theater, 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 theater,